Good morning. Scott Luton here with you on this edition of This Week in Business History. Welcome to today's show. On this program, which is part of the Supply Chain Now family of programming, we take a look back at the upcoming week, and then we share some of the most relevant events and milestones from years past. Of course, mostly business-focused, with a little dab of global supply chain, and occasionally, we might just throw in a good story outside of our primary realm. So I invite you to join me on this look back in history to identify some of the most significant leaders, companies, innovations, and perhaps lessons learned in our collective business journey. Now, let's dive in to this week in business history. Hello, and thanks for joining us. I'm Kelly Barner, owner of Buyer's Meeting Point and the host of Dial P for Procurement here on Supply Chain Now. Each week, my business history co-host Scott Luton and I travel back through time to bring you the best business stories, innovations, people, and surprising facts, some of which you have probably heard before and others of which are on the verge of being forgotten. If you enjoy our unique blend of storytelling and business history, Take a minute to subscribe to the podcast and share a review. That will help others find us. Now, if you tailgate, go to cookouts, or, I guess, attend frat parties, you've probably heard someone say, hold my beer, at least once. This phrase usually precedes that person acting upon the worst, most ill-advised idea they have ever had. Think liquid courage. In fact, at this point, The phrase is so ubiquitous that people will say, hold my beer, without even having a drink, just to indicate, hey, get a load of what I'm about to do, you are not going to want to miss this. Now, there is no requirement that the beer be in a can, bottle, or red solo cup, thank you, Toby Keith, to ask someone to hold it. But the history of the beer can is more interesting than people might think. Canned beer was first introduced in Richmond, Virginia on January 24, 1935. But who introduced it and why did they release it in Virginia? The first canned beer was made available thanks to a partnership between the American Can Company and the Gottfried Kruger Brewing Company, based in Newark, New Jersey. The cans were made of, at first, heavy gauge steel lined with tin, unlike the aluminum alloy we are familiar with drinking from today. And they were the idea of the American Can Company. Canning consumable items was common in the late 19th century, but the American Can Company didn't try using them for beer until 1909. Their first run was unsuccessful, and Prohibition hit before they were able to try again. By 1933, American Can finally had a can that was pressurized so it wouldn't explode and had a special coating to prevent the carbonation in the beer from creating a chemical reaction with the tin lining. So they had made innovative progress with their packaging, but they needed someone who had beer to really prove the test case. And they reached out to the Gottfried Kruger Brewing Company to take their idea to the next level. Kruger was not convinced. They were an old company with roots stretching back to 1851. Like all other breweries, when Prohibition took effect in 1920, 
they had to change their operation to stay compliant with the new law. But they were able to sell something called near beer, or beer with half a percent of alcohol by weight. Over time, they were allowed to get the alcohol as high as 3.2%. Just as a point of comparison, the average alcohol by volume, or ABV today, is 5%. According to witnesses who were there at the time, however, the line for 3.2% ABV near beer was so long, it took two days for the brewery to give everyone their beer and get things back to an operationally normal level. The biggest advantage of being able to keep brewing something is that Kruger kept their operation running consistently throughout Prohibition. And when it ended, they were able to run real beer right away, getting a first mover's advantage. So this is where we meet Kruger, just after the end of Prohibition, forming a partnership with American Can to learn more about their theory that beer could not only be sold in cans, people would actually prefer it that way. In order to offset the risk of this plan, American Can Company offered to install the canning equipment at Kruger for free, and they wouldn't have to pay for it unless the experiment was deemed successful. Both companies actually had good reasons for wanting the experiment to work. At the time, only bottles, not cans, required consumers to pay a deposit at the time of purchase, so using cans avoided that nuisance. The cans were easier to store and transport than bottles, and allowed the beer to be chilled faster. The other problem solved by cans was skunky beer. If beer in glass bottles is exposed to warm temperatures or direct sunlight, there can be a chemical reaction that leads to the beer tasting like a skunk's spray smells. Nice, right? Well, that doesn't happen with cans. So the long and short is that risk notwithstanding, everyone wanted this to work. Kruger did an initial run of 2,000 12-ounce cans and gave them to brewery employees and friends to try. Their feedback was positive enough for Kruger to increase their canned product offering to include their full-strength Kruger's Cream Ale and Kruger's finest beer brands and make them available to the general public. Despite this step, they still weren't totally sold on the idea and wanted to take one additional step to protect their brand. They shipped their first load of publicly available beer in cans to Richmond, Virginia, which was the furthest point in their distribution area. That way, they figured if it went poorly, no one would know who they were there anyhow. But as it turns out, they had very little to worry about. People loved beer in cans, and 91% of the people who tried it gave positive reviews. Within three months, over 80% of distributors carried Kruger's canned beer, and they were cutting into the market share of Anheuser-Busch, Pabst, and Schlitz, known as the Big Three Brewers. Everybody in the industry followed Kruger's lead, and by the end of 1935, over 200 million cans had been produced and sold by 37 different breweries. That's a ramp from zero in January of 1935 to 200 million by December of the same year. Now that piece of the story makes it sound like Pops and Anheuser-Busch got caught sleeping at the wheel, which is hardly the case. 
They were researching and experimenting and trying to develop their own can design in the 1920s. Just as with Kruger and American Can, prohibition got in the way. But once started, innovation never really stops. It might just be blocked for a while. And the experimentation picked back up once Kruger and American Can demonstrated how successful beer in a can could be. There were two competing designs at the time, the flat top can, which is what most of us have today, and what was called a cone top can. The cone top had a pop top similar to what we see on today's bottled beer, a piece of formed metal for the cone, and a piece for the body of the can. People at the time were not always open to the idea of drinking from a flat top can, so both designs coexisted to meet consumer preferences until world events once again intervened. From 1942 to 1947, all resources, including the tin that the cans were lined with, were rationed to support the war effort. The only beer that was allowed to be packaged and sold in cans was the beer that was being shipped overseas to the troops themselves. By the 1950s, the added cost for cone tops could no longer be justified, and they faded from the beer scene. In 1958, the world got another beer innovation. Aluminum, even cheaper and lighter than tin, was put into use. Credit for that innovation goes to the Hawaii Brewing Company. Today, virtually all U.S. beer cans are made out of an aluminum alloy that is lighter than straight aluminum and more resistant to rusting. With the material for beer cans settled, experimentation focused on how to open them. In 1962, the Iron City Brewing Company based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, released their Zip Top can. It had a small flat tab riveted to the center of the can's top that you would pull back to puncture the can and then tear off the perforated piece. Three years later, they replaced the zip top with a pull ring, so now it looked a little bit like opening a modern can of dog or cat food, only there was beer inside instead. The zip top and the pull ring both created a litter problem, however, as the opener would be discarded and designers kept looking for a better answer. Finally, in 1975, Reynolds Metals Company designed the Stay Tab, which is now used on virtually all beer and soda cans around the world. That tab uses leverage to pop down a perforated drinking area, but all of the pieces stay connected to the can. Today, canned beer accounts for approximately half of the $20 billion U.S. beer industry. And while big brewers still dominate in sales and volume, Craft brews have become very popular and they are nearly all sold in cans. Innovations in beer cans are now mostly focused around two things, printing and recyclability. Aluminum cans are the most recycled container in the world with a recycle rate of about 50%. And it can be recycled infinite times. This means that about 75% of the aluminum ever produced is actually still in use. Making new cans from old cans uses 90% less energy and creates 90% less emissions than producing that same can from new aluminum. So the next time you're at that tailgate, cookout, or yes, frat party, and someone tosses a can aside like a piece of trash, you can turn to your friends knowingly and say, Hold my beer.
On that note, it's time to wrap up this edition of This Week in Business History. Thank you so much for tuning into the show each week. Don't forget to check out the wide variety of industry thought leadership available at supplychainnow.com. As a friendly reminder, you can find This Week in Business History wherever you get your podcast from, and be sure to tell us what you think. We would love to earn your review, and we encourage you to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. On behalf of the entire team here at This Week in Business History and Supply Chain Now, this is Kelly Barner wishing you all nothing but the best. We'll see you here next time on This Week in Business History.